Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. Hey, oboists, have you checked out MKL Reads lately? MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reads where you can try reads from various makers and then select the one that is best for you. How cool is that? Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 38 of Double Read Dish. We are joined with the oboe component of our winner giveaway mystery prize, Hannah, coming to us from the UK. Hey, Hannah, how's it going? Hi. Good, thank you. How are you? I am great. And actually, I'm sure our listeners are dying to know a little bit about who you are and where you go to school. Yeah, sure. So um, I am currently studying at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. I'm in my third year of four. Um, and I am currently from North England and I came down to London to study here. <laughs> so how was your transition from, you said it was, uh, we were talking before we started recording and you said it was about three hours away. So how was your transition moving to London to start school? Yeah, it was really big and a little bit overwhelming at first, but there's a lot of music going on and there's loads of opportunities. Um, like back home, there weren't as many opportunities to go watch concerts and things like that. But here, there's just uh, like five concerts on every night in London. There's so much to do. Oh, I'm so jealous, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> So music education in the UK, um, it's a little bit different than we experience it here in the US. Do you have something called ABRSM exams? What are those and how do they work? Um, yeah, right. So I'm not exactly sure how it's different in the US, but I'll tell you what it's like here. So uh, basically, most um, school children will grow up doing graded exams. So that's either through the exam board, ABRSM, which stands for the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music, or there's Trinity exams, and you do grades one to eight. And each grade is um, pieces and scales and sight reading and things like that. And then normally you have to kind of be a bit past grade eight to apply for music college and things like that. And yeah, so most people will just go through that system. So if like an oboist in one part of the country and then an oboist of the same age doing the same exam in another part of the country, would they take the exact same exam? Ah, so um, it's not really to do with how old you are. Um, it's just whenever you feel ready. So I have a couple of students and we just sort of decide together what grade we want to put them in for based on um, what the syllabus is like. And you don't have to do every grade. And it's got nothing to do with like what school grade you're in. <sighs> oh, that's so interesting. Mm, yeah, yeah. So it's more like a just sort of you decide if you want to take them, although most people do, and then you can kind of go through the grades and it's to basically um, just to see where you're at and they're marked with numbers and distinction, merit, that sort of thing. So you have to pass grade eight in order to apply for music school at all? Um, you don't have to have it, but most of them say um, you kind of have to be um, at least past that standard um, and oh. the pieces which they set are used for um, entrance auditions are normally on the grade eight syllabuses. So it's like a barometer. If you're not here, you probably have some work to do before you're ready to be in school for this type of thing. Yeah. So it's more like you don't really have to have passed it for things. It's just um, 
just to see where you're at, really. Mm. It's sort of like the the ACTs or the SATs for music. Seems like. I don't know what that is, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, here, it, you don't have to do anything, like, standardized like that. I mean, most schools kind of have similar audition requirements, but it's more at the discretion of the teacher. And then if your grades um, allow you to be accepted into the university, if they look at something like that. Here, there's kind of two distinct paths. So you either go to music college or you go to university. And the music college or conservatory is more performance based with a bit of academic and university is mostly academic with a bit of performance. So the sort of grades that you need academically are different for both of those. Right. Let me see. Well, that's really interesting because, you know, I remember I went to kind of a, a I was in a less competitive area. I was in a little bit of a less dense area going from undergrad to graduate school. And I remember feeling like, okay, I'm a big fish in a little pond, so to speak, but not knowing if I could stack up when it came to East Coast conservatories and that type of thing, and really wondering how it would all shake out. And these exams kind of seem like they would be really good at giving a potential student an idea of how realistic they should be considering a career in this. Yeah, I think that definitely is um, a good aspect of it. So, Hannah, you are an oboist. What are your career aspirations for yourself in, you know, in the next 20 years or so? What kind of job do you want to be doing in music? That's a really good question. So I also play Baroque instruments as well as modern instruments. Um, I started playing Baroque instruments about two years ago, which I'm really enjoying. And I haven't quite decided yet which path I want to go down yet or if it will be possible for me to pursue both. So I'm just kind of um, keeping both options open at the moment. But I also really enjoy um, teaching. So I definitely like to do some of that as well. Amazing. What are some of your favorite pieces to play on baroque instruments do you have some go-tos that you're totally in love with i like a lot of the bach arias i have a soprano who i work with quite a lot and uh, we've been working through all the bach arias for oboe and soprano um i also really like vivaldi like the vivaldi sonata in b flat um there's too many to mention (laughs) it's true (laughs) yeah so you live in london you go to the guildhall school Mm-hmm. You love going to concerts. What do you do in your spare time besides making reads that cannot be the answer? <laughs> I do think it's really important to have hobbies in your spare time. So um, <laughs> I like knitting, actually. Oh. Me and my friends knit up and do, um, uh, meet up and do craftoon sometimes. <gasps> craftoon. Oh I love it. Yeah. That so is that's so fun. Cute. I also like cooking and eating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to the gym. I think it's really important as a musician to stay fit and healthy. And since I've been going to the gym, I've been having less physical problems when I play. So I definitely recommend that. So when did you start feeling like you were getting serious about pursuing music as a career? How early did that decision happen for you? So I started playing oboe when I was 10. And then it was, I think, probably when I was around... 16 I've been playing in the youth orchestra in my area the city of Sheffield youth orchestra I've been playing with them for a couple of years and that's when I think I decided really and so probably from when I was around 16 yeah did you have like a certain piece that really convinced you I had when I was um, in high school I played Tchaikovsky's sixth symphony and Mm -hmm. it was I learned it and I was like yep gotta do Mm -hmm. this did you have an aha moment like that? Um, I think maybe not one specific piece, but a build-up of lots of great pieces. I think around oh, yeah. that time in the youth orchestra, we did Brahms Violin Concerto, uh, which oh. was really exciting. And um, I, have you ever played uh, Vaughan Williams' A London Symphony? We did that, and I was no. playing. Oh, I really love that. That's a great piece. <sighs> oh, that's amazing. So when a young person decides that they want to pursue music, is it pretty much London bound or, you know, the U.S., we have a lot of geographic diversity and there are a lot of options. But in the U.K., is it just like, yeah, if you're serious, you go to London or or what kind of decisions were you weighing when you were deciding where to pursue your education? Um, Yeah, so first I had to decide whether I wanted to go to university or conservatory, and Mm. once I decided that, so there's, um, I believe, eight conservatoires in the UK, 
Um, so four of them are in London, and then one in Manchester, one in Birmingham, one in Wales, one in Scotland, and one in Leeds. So yeah, um, mo- uh, but seen as half of them were in London, that did limit my options a lot. <laughs> right. But I do like it in London. So how many does someone usually apply to? Or do you pretty much decide, like, this is the one I'm going to go for? Or do you kind of cover your bases and audition for multiple? So I think I applied for five. So there was a lot of traveling up and down the country in about a three-week period, which was kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I keep wanting to ask you the same question over and over again because I'm so jealous I'm like salivating at the mouth about all the concerts that you're able to go to um there is a lot yeah could you maybe tell us about one of your favorite ones well I've really enjoyed going to a lot of um historical performance instrument concerts recently because I hadn't really been to any of them since I moved to London and I went to a really great concert recently with a baroque group called um Floridium and they played um all of the Bach Brandenburg concertos in a row which I really enjoyed that in a row yeah yeah (laughs) oh wow so I think they played lot. them backwards, and the oboists are only in the first two, I believe. So I was waiting the whole time for the oboists. <laughs> oh <to come> my <laughs> god! <laughs> wow, that seems like a real face killer. Yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. And where was it? Um, that was at a church in London called St George's in Hanover Square, where I actually also did a concert recently. And the reason they do a lot of Baroque concerts there is because apparently Handel used to play there a lot when he was in London. Wow. So it was really exciting to be able to perform there. Um, I think it was in March I did a concert with Guildhall playing Baroque cantatas. That's amazing. That is really cool to be in some place with so much history. Yeah, absolutely. So... To finish up, one thing I'm just very curious about, you are in London, so you were there for the royal wedding. What was it like? Did the city just shut <laughs> down or was the traffic insane? Was it like, oh my gosh, why is the city so bloated? Tell us your experience. <laughs> so um, I was actually out of London over the weekend. No! <laughs> <laughs> But um, oh, I did um, get the tube out of London, that's the subway, um, on Saturday morning, and there were a few delays, but other than that, I was out of London. But I watched some of it online, and it looked great. There was some good music and some good hat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so was that a strategic move? Did you purposely leave because of the weather? It actually wasn't, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think uh, the royal wedding is the second best blending of UK and US. Uh, this That's right. Dish being the first. So, That's right. uh, <laughs> oh, great. yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We have just loved so much visiting with you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on the podcast. I love your podcast. <laughs> No matter where you live, Double or Nothing is there for you. Dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reads to discriminating double read players of all ages and abilities, Double or Nothing Reads has recently expanded to sell double read tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. As authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. In addition, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. If you're looking for private oboe lessons but can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit doubleornothingreads.com for good quality and affordable readmaking supplies and accessories, lessons, instruments, and much more. So we all know that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know that you can get oboe and bassoon reads from Genda Industries at the Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall It's like a farmer's market, and it's filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their own reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. And who knows, one day maybe your reeds will be for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, 
Cutting Block, and Read Tool Row. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just read knives. So, Galee, coming up for the listeners, we have a great interview with Dwight Perry. I was cackling. <laughs> I know on this podcast we're on, I'm on cackle watch all the time, but I'm definitely cackling in this interview. And Dwight Perry also wanted to make sure that when we introduce him that we include that he attended the Cleveland Institute of Music because we got so carried away in the interview that we forgot to continue on with his early biography. So his schooling is USC and then the Cleveland Institute of Music. Well, enough Gabin. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. Today we have for our interview Dwight Perry, Principal Oboe of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Hi, thanks for having me. Could we start off by having you talk to our listeners about how you started playing the oboe and walk us through your educational journey? Uh, sure. Well, um, I played the piano when I was really young, um, but... A couple of years in, I just said to my mom that I wanted to quit, and she goes, okay. <laughs> and I, I, I really wish she hadn't, if I'm being honest. I hope my mom doesn't listen to this, but uh, I think maybe I'd be a really good pianist if she hadn't accepted that. Uh, but anyway, I quit after just a couple of years and then didn't, didn't think much about music until middle school. Um, and then I started playing the saxophone, and I was really into that. Um, I played jazz, and I wanted to be like Kenny G. They called me Dwighty G. Oh, um, no. So, yeah. I mean, I, I was having a good time. I really enjoyed it. I played flute and clarinet as well. And uh, and it was it was really just for fun, though. In, uh, in high school, um, there were some conflicts with, like, chemistry classes and things like this, trying to be a serious student and, and go to school for something that was definitely not music. Um and so there's just a choice, either quit or um, start another instrument and join the beginning band. And the band director said, well, you know, you're with the woodwinds. Why don't you try an oboe? And honestly, I looked at him and I said, what's an oboe? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I had no idea, just no idea at all. And he, he pulled this thing out of a closet uh, that was an old kabar with all the bells and whistles, left hand half and everything. And uh, at Actually, it was, an, it was a fine instrument, uh, got some reeds, found a, found a teacher, and within a couple months, I was playing in lots of ensembles around town, and it, I don't know, I just took to it, I thought, this is really fun, nobody else played it around there, and um, one day, somebody said, we'd like to have you play at this event, and we'll pay you, and I'm like, come again? <laughs> you want to, you you wait a minute, you want to you pay me to play the oboe? Yes, yes, we do. Uh, and so I just said, well, i got to stick with this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I enjoyed it and, and majored in oboe in college, um, had some wonderful teachers along the way, and um, I feel just incredibly lucky all the time about how things have, have worked out. Um, what made you decide to pursue music professionally? Was it before or after they told you you had to make your own read? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that I wasn't uh I wasn't fully informed <laughs> of, what, of what was required of me. Um I just really liked to play and but even through my undergraduate, although I was an oboe major um and studying with Alan Vogel at USC, um I, I still wasn't really sure what I was going to do professionally. Um I don't know. I struggled with reads uh, like m many students do, but that was getting better. And um, and then I uh, I went and I, I met John Mack for the first time, and sort of the combination of my work with Alan and David Weiss and and some other good teachers, including Joel Tim, uh, and then meeting John Mack and kind of getting some straight talk. Like this is where you are. If this is where you want to be. This is what you need to do. And I thought, well, I can I can do that. And I, I love this. And I started to think. I may not be happy doing anything else. And when that really hits you, like I didn't feel like I had a choice in the matter. So, so I went with it. Could you talk to us about um, embarking on your professional career, your experience in auditioning? Our listeners always love to get tips on auditioning um, and how you came to where you are today. 
Yeah, sure. Um, I, I wish I had a, a magic bullet of some kind or super secret tip um, to, you know, pre- preparing for auditions, whether that's for school or taking your first professional auditions. Um, I mean, that's it's just all in your preparation. I think I think that if you do enough listening and dedicated practice time on your own and if, if seeking out experiences so that you're playing with other people and developing that savvy um, for how, how to listen well and how to adjust and, 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 you know, how to play with other people. That all, that all factors together when you're up on that stage playing by yourself. Um, and if you've done your, if you've done your homework, then there's not a whole lot to be, to be nervous about. You just go up and play how you play and hope that they are buying what you're selling that day, as they say. I would love to hear more about your studies with Alan Vogel and David Weiss. Alan Vogel was a guest on a previous episode of the podcast, and he was such a delight to talk to. And I'm wondering if you could tell us some of the best things that you learned from your studies. Yeah. Um, Alan, Alan Vogel uh, was one of the just seminal influences for me um, personally, as well as um, musically and, and technically and in my studies with him. Uh, he's, a, he's just a fabulous man and uh, a really feeling, caring person. Most of our work was about expression, about uh, supporting well and creating phrases and digging deep and finding meaning. Um, we did a lot of Bach. We did a lot of the Strauss concerto together. Um, that was the first time I really dug into Strauss. Um, and then and then Fairling. And no single note was ever approached um, Casually, you know, it, it, everything has meaning, and that's that's stuck with me. And and so to this day, I'm I'm constantly kind of asking myself the, the question: you know, Why am I playing this piece? How can I dig deeper? What am you know? What am I really trying to do here? Not just play the oboe, but speak and sing and 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 really express something. Oh, and the other thing is, Alan is the best practicer I've ever met. <laughs> he's incredible. I mean, to this day, he does long tones. I'm sure of it. And and <laughs> working on your fundamentals. Any time that I wake up and I'm feeling a little bit off, I just think of what would Alan do right now. Well, he would just practice. He would he would do some fundamentals, do some long tones, do some very basic scales. And in just a few minutes, I feel more centered, and I'm having a good day with the oboe. Mm-hmm. He told us he does. He plays a Bach chorale every day. Is it a I believe it. A cantata. Yeah. A cantata, sorry. A sure, yeah. Cantata. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, lo- he loves Bach, and, and he's not alone in that. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, in Cincinnati right now, we have um, something at the, a local church called uh, St. Thomas. We're the Bach Ensemble of St. Thomas. And uh, once a month, we do a Vesper service with Bach cantatas, um, you know, in that in that setting in which they were originally performed. And, uh, again, I'm always thinking about Alan and um, playing Bach, not just kind of historically informed performance, not just getting it right, but digging very deep and finding all of the, the pain and doubt and hope and everything that is there in, in Bach, and one of our great teachers. Mm-hmm. You have a resume of a lot of concerto performances. You have a performance most recently with of the Strauss Concerto with the Cincinnati Symphony. Could you talk to us a little bit about um, your preparation of concerti and how you approach that as opposed to playing within the orchestral ensemble? Well, I mean, just just first of all, I, I, I never wanted a career in which I did just one thing, like sit in, sit in the chair in an orchestra and, and not playing concertos, not teaching, not doing chamber music, not traveling. Um, I, I think having a kind of a portfolio career is what has always excited me. And particularly, um, you know, getting up there and being the soloist. It's, it's really thrilling. It's, it's your chance to spin out this essay and play the, the major lines in the concert. Um, so for Strauss, yeah, uh, last season I performed the Strauss Concerto with Cincinnati. Um, actually, in October I performed it in, in Kentucky. Um, and so that that piece and maybe all this stuff, I I, I, don't know, I learned them a long time ago and tried to get through most of the repertoire out there so that um, anytime I approach it again, it's like revisiting an old friend, uh, not you know learning something completely new. Although I do that too with um, new composition. 
Um, I think for the Strauss concerto, it's 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 not about hashing out the notes anymore, but about exploring what I want to say with it and um, finding some kind of some kind of deeper expression. Um, I always perform from from memory, and um, I think I think we should in as much as we can because um, we have to. I don't want to say compete, but you know, you're getting up on stage, and the pre- week previous may have been Gil Shaham, and then it's Johnny right. Tuesday, and they're they're so amazing, and I know I, I like there's so many ways in which I can't measure up to those just genius players, but I, I can I can do my best. I, I can memorize my part. I can be really well prepared and and try to really speak to to the audience. Do you have any specific methods you use to approach memorization? Does that come really natural to you? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I find that when when I'm really in, in invested in a piece and I really like it and feel emotionally engaged, that memorizing it it, it just kind of happens. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, do you, do you know your favorite songs on the radio? Can you sing them? But you don't have to study them. You just know them because you like to sing along. Mm-hmm. So I, I really like these pieces and um, I kind of sing them sometimes and practice them a lot and play through them just for fun. And before you know it, it's just sort of a part of you. Um, but you, you do have to couple that with some study because there's a lot of detail. And performing something from memory, it, it's not enough to know the melody and to sing your part. You have to know every single detail. You are the principal oboist of a major full-time orchestra. And I am curious about your take on what it what it takes to be a great principal oboist and um, what kind of skills are helpful in that job? Uh, that's a really great question. Um, I think that's, and an, I probably have an evolving answer, as in the last 11 years in Cincinnati, um, I was with the San Diego Symphony for one year prior to that, and, and then prior to that, the New World Symphony, which is really the crucible uh, for me, uh, learning how to be uh, a better player and a better colleague. Um, so, so for where I am now, I think being a principal oboe is a combination of collegiality and leadership. That the the role that you fill in 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 a lot of the the writing and the the way that your part is written um, demands leadership from you. But the way in which we're interacting with our colleagues, which are equally esteemed, if not more so in so many cases, I mean, I have so much respect for the guy sitting behind me, Bill Winstead. I would never turn around and <laughs> tell him how to play something. I would ask him how to play something. Um, so being, I think being a leader is like, when you play, you play with leadership. You you. You show a certain kind of phrasing and a lot of confidence, but when you're you're interacting with people, you're a colleague. You know, you're working on things together and asking questions and trying things. And uh, I've I've sort of flattered uh, for for our group in Cincinnati that a lot of people say that, wow, you guys are so nice. It's a really like really collegial orchestra. Thank you. We we it's not an accident. Um, we foster that environment by continuing to speak respectfully to each other and talking to each other and working things out with this common goal of just always wanting to improve and explore new things. What would you say to students slash pre-professionals who wish they had that kind of confidence to play a principal oboe role but don't quite have it yet? Um, Do you have any advice or any tips for how to foster that level of leadership and confidence? Well... I think that your 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 confidence comes from your preparation so that you're you're always sure that what you're about to do is going to go well. And I know <laughs> I'm talking to an oboist and a bassoonist right here and a community of oboists and bassoons. We know that that's not 100% true. You, you know, you go you go in and you you got to give your tuning A and 99.9% of the time, I feel like, all right, that's going to be great. But it, it just, there's a read involved, and you're a human being, and <laughs> it's an oboe, and, and in truth, you never quite know. But that, that, that seed of doubt, and also the little bit of fear or distraction that can come into play from thinking, well, what, do, what will people think of me? Will I be judged? Uh, I hope, I hope they like it. Um, that, like, of course, I know that 
I'm up there and people are listening to me and on some level they're maybe even judging me, but that feeling, that knowledge doesn't serve me when I'm performing. There's no room for that. You, you just, you just focus on what you're doing. Focus on, on the music and how much you love it and how invested you are and listening to people and paying attention to the conductor and what's going on with your, yourself, you know, and, and, and if you're really focused on that, I feel like there's, there's no room in your attention, in your brain, to be worried. You just play for the love of it. Thank you. That was a great answer to a very big question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like it might have some overlap with what I was planning to ask, which is your approach to dealing with performance anxiety. So, of, of course, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but maybe um, more specifically to put a different spin, how do you approach as a principal um, in a full-time orchestra preparing those high-pressure excerpts um, to play in context? What is your process like? Well, I don't think of anything as high pressure. Um, it it's, starts. It's, yeah, <laughs> I, I, really, I really think it is. Yeah. I mean, there, there's enough um, imperfection and variability and, and, and you know, that sort of thing sort of built into our instruments and the nature of live performance to go into it with an attitude of, uh, this is high pressure. The stakes are up. Oh, 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 I hope it goes well. That's that's self-defeating. There's no, no there's no no place for it. So whether it's the tumble de Cuprano or Chike Four or you know Brahms One, I'm thrilled to play those solos. I, I don't think of it as a high stakes scenario. I'm just happy that there's a great solo on the, on my stand this week. Um, but you know maybe another another approach to what we talked about in terms of performing anxiety is um, remembering why we're doing what we're doing. That we we love the music, we we know what we're doing, we're 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 well prepared, but we're also playing for people who who generally speaking they aren't there to pick apart what we're doing and say you know what I think that note was out of tune. They, if they can even tell, our audience is there to be transported and to be moved. And when when you remember that and you look out in the audience and there's this delightful little old lady in the front row who's just smiling and loving it. I think, why the heck would I be nervous? She's loving this right now. Just go for it. Right. That that kind of reminds me of Erin Hannigan spoke of before she plays a concert. She'll look out into the audience and find one person to play that concert for. And that kind mm. of reminded me of that. So you're obviously very busy. And I would love to know um, how you approach work-life balance, if that's a thing you consider or even believe to to be possible. To be possible. How do we define the life aspect of that work-life balance? (laughs) Um, You know, I I mean, we could get into kind of the stock thing that we we love music, we love to play, so that is so much of my life. I, I don't usually feel like I'm working or burdened in some way to have to go into a rehearsal. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy to do it. I, I want to do that. But I, I also do believe that you've got to have other things. And if at the very least, we have to get out of a chair now and then and move our bodies. I mean, it's, it can be just physically destructive to, to play the oboe. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, I, I try to exercise. I, I enjoy playing, um, uh, disc golf and, and uh, ultimate frisbee and going running or swimming when I can. Um, uh, I like to cook just to kind of have a, I don't know, focus on something else and meditate on food and then eat the food and enjoy that. <laughs> um, it's some, some of it's the time that you dedicate to something that is not music, but a lot of it is the way that we kind of compartmentalize our attention. I think that we, we get obsessive and you can go through your whole day cycling through thoughts about your reads or your playing or, or, you know, this kind of thing. And it's exhausting. It's truly exhausting and it really doesn't serve you. If you can just put that away for a while, do not think about music or the oboe for a good hour and read a great book or hang out with your friends or it doesn't even have to be important. Just do nothing. Um, I think you get refreshed and you come back to your work feeling feeling good about it and not exhausted. A thousand percent. Hmm. 
How do you go about structuring your practice time so that it is as effective and efficient as possible? And do you have any warm-ups or routines that you use regularly? Um, well, I mean, efficiency is definitely the name of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you, One of my teachers, um, Jonathan Davis, said to me a long, long time ago, um, you're never going to have the kind of time you do right now as, as a student uh, once you're out there trying to make a living and taking auditions and just living your life. So take advantage of this time right now. And I, I took that to heart, and, and, and I did. I, I, was, I was the guy who would say, no, I can't go out tonight. I can't go to that party. I'm going to practice. And, um, and I, I don't regret a moment of that, although there were maybe a few parties I would have enjoyed as well. <laughs> uh, but, you know, whatever. Um, but, it, you know, the, these days, it, um, I have a limited amount of time in a given day to, to actually practice. And some of that needs to be a slow, focused warm-up, um, long tones and scales. I still play Barrett and I will to my dying day. I just believe in it and I love it and it teaches me every day. So even the very first progressive, uh, you know, etude, I, I'm, I'm there doing Barrett. Um, and then go through kind of what's on my stand for the week or months ahead, play a little bit of a concerto, play a little bit of some of those solos and think about it and explore it. In terms of staying in shape, playing in an orchestra full-time keeps you in great shape. I, I, don't, I never feel like I need to work on endurance or, or that sort of thing. Uh, it's just about exploring music and, and practicing new techniques, um, uh, you know, new music, that sort of thing. What are some of your favorite pieces to play? Oh, well, that's great. Um, I mean, gosh. It's I, an I unfair to... question. I'm sorry. Well, it's unfair, <laughs> but it, it's, it's an, in a good way. I mean, that we have such a wealth of, of repertoire um, from chamber music to solos to all this stuff in the orchestra and, and opera. Um, I love to play Mozart and, and Bach and Mahler to get a little bit into that just psychological schizophrenic side and explore extremes I love Mahler um, we're I also love the impressions we're coming up on playing um, the f- complete ballet Daphnis and Chloe and I'm very excited about that I think Ravel and Debussy just wrote so well for the woodwinds it's incredible beautiful stuff and great to play what are some of your favorite memories of a past performance we love to hear about um, people's experiences on stage that resonate with them? Hmm. Um, well, a couple just sort of popped into my brain. I haven't thought about this in a while. Um, it's usually the performances that don't go 100% well, but somehow you triumph anyway, and everyone loved it. Um, I remember this concert I gave a long time ago. It was it was a house concert, so there were maybe 40 people, and I was playing the Caligoda, more so to Salon. And... Uh, I was playing along, and I thought it was going really well. All the way to the end, it was going so well. I was so happy about it, and blah, blah, blah. And then the final phrase is... And then the high G natural at the very end did not speak. The last note of the piece, and I, 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 I tried to tongue it again and again, and it just wouldn't speak. And in this moment, it was like the Matrix. Like, the time slowed, and I saw the audience... They were they were worried about me. Is he gonna, what's he gonna do? Is he gonna cry? What's gonna happen? And I just I put the oboe up in the air and I put my teeth on the reed and I squealed out this high G that was incredibly loud. And the audience, I swear to you, they erupted. They like jumped out of their chairs and started screaming. And I, I thought, wow, I would not have had that reaction had I just nailed the note. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I learned a lot about the sort of the nature of live performance that day. They're not there to hear you reproduce something or to just sit there and hear you play it perfectly. Oh, cool. That was good. He played all the notes. They're, they're here to be a part of an exciting live experience. And often when something doesn't go quite well, that's your opportunity. You know, you can, you, you can, how do you respond to that? When you trip on the sidewalk, do you fall down and do, do you do a little dance and go, hey, I'm good here, I'm good, I'm good. That, you do that in music because mistakes will happen at every level, in every orchestra, every single player, bar none. But how you recover from that, how you make an expressive phrase through that, uh, that, that can define that. 
that moment, and it can be an amazing moment. I love yeah, that. You got them on your side. Yeah, right, right. They're on yeah. your team. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of um, – I remember watching, I think it was a documentary of Jacqueline Dupre, and she was giving a performance, and she broke a string. Mm. And she just stood up and looked at her audience and said, I'm sorry, I broke a string. I need to go replace it, and then I'll be back out. And (laughs) it just wasn't a big deal. And I remember, yes, just being amazed and flabbergasted and then thinking, well, yeah, she just broke a string. What's she supposed to do? You know, right. put a new one on and then, you know, give her performance. But it seems like, yeah, we can put such this wall between us and our audience that really doesn't even exist. We're all just people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're all we're all there for the same reason to be a part of this to this of this art to share in this musical experience and they're they're with you, you know. They don't have to be there. They bought a ticket. They they want to enjoy what you're doing. Switching gears a little bit. Um, you are also a teacher, and you have, you know, a large and accomplished studio. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about repertoire or resources um, that stick out in your mind as good teaching tools. Oh, well, uh, um, the Barrett book. Barrett uh, Percussive Bobo Method. Uh, I think that's our that's our little Bible. And um, sometimes a graduate student or doctoral student will come to me and say, "Okay, and say, well, I've done Barrett and I've done my Fairling, so I, would, I really just want to do excerpts with you." I say, have, "Okay, have you really? Um, can we do Barrett number one?" And I'll just I'll just whip out Barrett number one, and invariably there are things that we're still learning and it's worth going back to. And then I, I win them over. I say, "You know, we're not done with Barrett." I'm not done with Barrett, so I'm sure you're not done with Barrett. Like, we still need to be, to be working through this. Um, so it's definitely the Barrett and Fairling books. I, I kind of come, try to come up with individualized um, little practice motifs to help people explore various uh, technical and musical issues that we encounter, like how to do a great downward slur, um, how to support an upward slur, slurring interval, or to create a great legato phrase. And... Um, you can base it on a, a popular melody or a folk melody or something, whatever you feel that that student is kind of responding to. Because if they're not going to enjoy practicing, then they're not going to do it very much, <laughs> especially for younger students. I want, to, I want them to feel really engaged and happy about it. Could we talk a little bit about reads and your approach to read making, any advice you can give? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, every, every oboe player is going to tell you, keep your knives really sharp. Um, and and that's certainly true, probably the best piece of advice. Um, but in maybe in a more general way, I would say um, try to approach read-making as you do your practice routine and warming up or in the way you approach like something like yoga. Uh, you, don't, you don't do it and put it away. It's a practice. You come back to it regularly, and you set an intention. So when you sit down to make reads, you should be doing this on a schedule, daily, and um, with an intention in mind, sit down and focus on getting a read to a certain point with certain benchmarks and then put it away and then come back to it later after it's sort of settled a little bit and, and get it to the next stage. And if you do that basically every day, you, you always have these reads in the pipeline and some of them will not work, but some of them will. And you won't find yourself scrambling to get a read for a performance. Do you have any tips? For teaching or learning difficult physical musical concepts like embouchure and vibrato, I, that's very individual. I, I mean, I believe that your embouchure and your reeds go hand in hand. So if I tell someone, yeah, keep keep your sides firm, you know, and and, and keep your sides in, <laughs> and uh, relax your lower lip a little bit, make it nice and soft and support well. If 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 they're not playing on a reed um, that is stable and responds well. Um, that that embouchure really won't won't even necessarily work. I mean, a lot of the reason people learn to bite or they learn kind of some bad habits about how to approach their embouchure and play the oboe is because their reeds are not stable and they're not working that well. Um, so I would always teach uh, the the reed making concurrently with uh, embouchure. And in terms of vibrato, I think of vibrato as a fluctuation of intensity and color, but uh, but not pitch. So I start by just pulsing the diaphragm and creating little forte pianos within a long tone with a metronome, uh, kind of like da, ra, ra, that sort of thing. 
pushing your air, and then speed it up and and then and then kick it up into your into your throat and let it just sing. You come across as someone who's really passionate and um, enthusiastic about what you do, but do you have any um, places that you look for inspiration for maybe those times when our careers are more draining than fulfilling or just to kind of keep our tanks full? Where do you look for inspiration? Well, I'm not to sound hippy-dippy, but um, just going on a great hike and <laughs> kind of feeling inspired about life and appreciating being alive and breathing um, helps me keep going and, and get back and work hard when, it, when it's time. Um, in, terms of, in terms of music, um, I think we can kind of get stuck in our own head a little bit sometimes. It's important to, to get out and listen to, to great singers and great performers on other instruments and on oboe and oboists of completely different styles, uh, like some European players that maybe we in the United States don't want to make our reads the same way, but that, that shouldn't, that shouldn't stop us from learning from what they're doing and being inspired by that. Um, that's actually one of the things that I've really appreciated about working at, um, CCM, um, where I'm, I'm adjunct faculty uh, along with, um, Mark Ostich, who's a full-time faculty and a, a wonderful colleague, um, that we just believe that having myriad influences and points of view is is very positive for your ongoing uh, musical development, and that there is no one right way to to approach any of this, um, to scrape a reed or to play a phrase. And music is not about reproducing uh, patterns, but this... Um, like just a series of choices, and you take that from your palette, like an artist uh, with a palette of experience and stylistic understanding, um, expressive depth, and remaining uh, nimble through active listening and reacting, making chamber music all the time. I'm inspired by playing with people and and re- reacting and relating to people. It's a social experience. So there are a lot of young musicians out there listening and um, admiring you and your playing and all of the wonderful advice that you're giving. And I was wondering what advice you would give to them and maybe also what advice you would have given to yourself when you were their age. Hmm. <laughs> well, the the piece of advice I would, I would give to myself might be along the lines of um, what we talked about a bit earlier. Um, there were so many occasions. I, I, can, I can remember one in particular in which I was practicing at two in the morning, and my friends came to the practice room window and were kind of jumping and putting their heads in the window like, "Hey Dwight, why did you come out of there now?" Like I don't want to say that I regret practicing because I don't, uh, I don't at all. But I would tell a younger version of myself, "Hey." It's okay to take a night and go out and and hang out with your friends. It really is. And if I knew then what I knew now about how to be really efficient with my practice, I wouldn't have practiced as many hours, but I would have gotten more done. Mm -hmm. But for a younger player, I would say uh, uh, be be ravenous. Uh, Seek out opportunities. Uh, Listen to things. Go to concerts. Work with lots of different people. And... Try to be open to to this idea of like what I said a moment ago that there's not just one way. Um, I, I, that's something that it took me a while to get over because most of our education is about there's a right and a wrong answer and there are little circles that you fill in on the SATs, but that's not what art is at all. And when you accept that, it, it's like removing this this brick wall that you've been butting your head against, it just opens up a world of possibility and you feel like, I can do anything. I can soar. I can fly. I can sing. Uh, And that's an incredible feeling. And it's what this is really about. I love that. Could you tell us about what is on your agenda, what performance you have coming up that you are particularly excited about or something you'd encourage people to see if they're in the area? We'd love to hear what's next for you. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, uh, next week in Cincinnati, we're performing the Brahms Violin Concerto. Uh, 
Um, and I'm really looking forward to that, <laughs> of course. Um, Beethoven 7 is also on the program. Uh, and a few weeks later, it's the Daphnis and Chloe Complete Ballet. Um, so there's, there's just always something kind of coming up. Something that I've, I've really appreciated about my job in Cincinnati is not just that I'm a member of this fantastic orchestra and, and I'm so appreciative of my colleagues there, but that I'm also given the freedom to to leave when I need to and take other opportunities, experience what it's like to play in other orchestras. Uh, right now, I'm actually performing with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, um, and I'm loving it. We're making chamber music together. And this summer, I'll be teaching um, at a festival in South Africa and also at the Interlochen Academy. So I'd encourage any students listening to seek out Interlochen. I think it's a fantastic summer program, and I always wish that I had done it when I was a young person, but I didn't. Well, it has been so wonderful to talk with you. Where can the listeners find you on the Internet? Oh, I'm, I made a website. It's it's not amazing or anything, but um, DwightPerry.com has a couple of video things and a couple of couple of clips. Um, recordings with Cincinnati Symphony feature me, and um, you can find me at CCM or or around Cincinnati. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, put, I put my email address on my website because I, I think it's important to be accessible. And if any okay. students want to talk to me, like I I could talk to. David Weiss, when I was in high school, he was just so accessible and so generous. And uh, I think if I hadn't had that, maybe maybe I would have been missing something really important. Of course, I miss him. I miss him now very much. Well, Dwight, it has been so lovely. Thank you so much for being on Double Read Dish. We're so grateful that you are generously giving us your time. And um, I know the listeners are going to love it. It's been my pleasure. Well, and Galit misspoke. I'm sure she, she meant to call you Dwighty G. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I almost regret, or maybe I will regret putting it out there. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Dwight Perry. Don't forget that you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, <laughs> Anywhere you get podcasts, we are there. Galit, where can they find us on the internet? We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And Hannah, who's coming up next? William Ludwig, Professor of Bassoon at Indiana University.